Well, we just started a new series last week, uh, thinking about the life of David, one of the most famous characters in the Old Testament, King David. Next week, we'll be hearing about how he shot Goliath and uh, killed Goliath with his slingshot. Um, Last week, we did a general introduction, and uh, I suppose this week, we're starting properly, and I hope we'll see today that David's story begins effectively with God himself choosing him to be the future king of Israel. I think the simple main point of this section that Jolene so hopefully read to us is to show that David was God's choice. There you go. You can all go home now. That's it. <laughs> That's the main point of this section. God chooses David to be the king. We'll get, we'll get into it in a minute, but I just want to take two or three minutes just to say something about this. I want, I want you to hear that when God chooses to do something, when God makes a choice, it's in a different category to when we make choices, isn't it? It's in a completely different category. From this moment on, as we'll see, David and his life and everything about him will come under the sovereign protection and care and love of God himself. He, he is God's choice. But I want to say this, the, individual, the idea of individual choice, I, I think is very important in our Western society. And I would go as far as to say, we can talk about this afterwards if you like, I would go as far as to say that generally we view the idea of being able to choose things as a kind of defining mark of what it means to be human. The freer you are, the more confidence you have to choose your own path and destiny, the more human you are. I think that's what our society believes. Would you agree with me? But I think it's also confusing, very confusing, because we, all, we also, I think, want to believe that every choice is equally valid and true. Everyone is different. We have different backgrounds, different ideas, different desires. The most desirable thing in our modern culture is that all of us should be free to choose the, whatever we want and to believe that that is the mark of being human, I think, nowadays is, is to be mature, it's to be tolerant, it's to be sympathetic. It is a mark of humanity to understand and appreciate and accept the validity of the choices that others around us make. And there's a good side to that, of course. As Christians, we recognize that there's a lot of good in our culture, it is a healthy reminder that we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss people who are not like us. It's a healthy reminder that we should, all of us, work hard to understand different ideas and embrace sometimes other points of view. But the elephant in the room in our modern culture is this. If everything is true, and if everything is equally valid, then actually nothing is ultimately true or valid in the end. 
I want to mention that just very briefly. We're not going to spend all day talking about philosophy, but I mention that briefly because I think this passage immediately clashes with our modern society's notion of choice. I don't think a God who chooses is welcome to participate in that discussion. When it says that God chooses David to be king, I, I, I think that's a scary thought. It reminds us that there is a God who has an opinion. God makes choices. And it isn't that we Christians want to impose our views on others, but I think what we do argue is that while our human perspective is limited, God's perspective isn't. God's knowledge is not provisional knowledge like ours often is. His approach is not one flawed approach among many valid approaches. His choice has an absolute validity about it because he's God. He sees things that we don't see. His approach isn't one approach among many. It is a transcendent, absolutely valid approach. I I think this kind of talk will either be a massive relief to you that there's something solid to hold on to in the postmodern fog that we live in, or it will be deeply and profoundly offensive and sound very arrogant and, um, yeah, upset you. So when, I, I want to start by that. We're only just going to talk about that briefly. When we read here that God chooses David to be king, I think what we're meant to see in this section is that his choice is in a different... There's a contrast being made here between God's choice and human choice. And they're in a different category altogether. Here's what we're going to do. That's the philosophical bit over. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and just walk through this passage. And uh, what I want to try and do is notice with you four aspects of God's choice of David to be king. And you'll, you'll see them on the program there. I always feel like we give you a sneak preview. There's no, no hiding for the preacher when you've got it all there. But uh, we're going to look at these four aspects of God's choice of David as king. And at the end, I want to try and draw these four themes together and show you something much bigger than David, how these four themes point actually to a greater David, a son of David, the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage you this afternoon. I want to encourage you this afternoon to trust him, not David, Jesus. So we'll get there hopefully by the end. So here we go, number one. Um, God's choice of David, firstly, awakens a hope that overcomes human despair. This passage begins with sadness. Did you notice that when Jolene read to us? The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? since I've rejected him as king over Israel. The prophet Samuel 
is sad. He's grieving. He's mourning for King Saul. And God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, that's enough. You've been crying for long enough. Stop it now. The time for grieving is over. It's time for action, man. Get your jar, fill it with oil, put the cork in it, and go to Bethlehem. It's time to stop crying and do something. It's an amazing beginning. So the first question, obviously, is what is Samuel sad about? Why is, he, why is Samuel crying and mourning and weeping? This story, we're breaking into 1 Samuel here, right in the middle. Chapter 16 is the middle chapter in 1 Samuel. But the story really starts at the beginning with Samuel's mum called Hannah. I have a few Hannahs in our congregation. Samuel's mum was called Hannah. At the beginning of this book, the nation of Israel is a mess. The priests are corrupt. People are being abused. Their brutal enemies, the Philistines, are bullying and oppressing and dominating them. There's no leadership. There's no justice. It seems like there's no hope. But in this darkness, even before Israel had any king, Hannah imagines a great king who would not be brutal or selfish, but good and strong and kind, a king who instead of living for himself and serving his own interests, lives to serve his people and bless them. A king who would give himself entirely for his subjects. A king who isn't accumulating power, but distributing power to his subjects. I think Hannah must have passed on this great vision to her son Samuel. And later, as Samuel grows, he becomes the kingmaker in Israel. And he anoints, first of all, this man called Saul to be the king, the first king of Israel. They never had a king. And he appoints Saul to be king. It all started so well. Saul was an impressive figure. I think Samuel loved him very much. He looked like a king. It says in the Bible that he was a full head and shoulders taller than any, anyone else. He looked like a king. He turned out to be a disaster. He wasn't kingly in the way Hannah had dreamt a king should be. If you look back with me on the previous chapter, chapter 15 and verse 10. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And God said to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. Because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And then we're told Samuel was angry. And he cried all night. Can you imagine that? God comes to him and said, enough. Saul, what a disaster. And Samuel cries all night. And look at the end of chapter 15, just before where we read from. 
the very last verse there, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel had high hopes, and now this prophet of God, he's sad for Saul, he's sad for the nation. What's going to happen to Israel now? Are we going to go back to how it was at the beginning? I wonder whether Samuel's also perhaps sad for the failure of his own ministry. This is the guy that he's anointed to be the first king of Israel. It, it all goes wrong. It feels like Samuel has done his best and it's all collapsing around him. Ever feel like that? Friends, I, I think we should pause here and just see how up to date this is. Have you read a newspaper recently? When we look out into the world, isn't there a sense of sadness like this? We have high hopes. We have high dreams, don't we? And it seems like there's never a good and true king. Who, who is going to be truly kingly in the way that Hannah described? Everywhere we look, it seems there's corruption and injustice and difficulties even the best of our leaders are imperfect. And so Samuel mourns. And there, there's, there's a rightness in his mourning. But God comes to Samuel here in the beginning and gently rebukes him. He doesn't rebuke Samuel. I'm going to get mixed up between Samuel and Saul here, aren't I? I hope you can interpret if I do that. When God comes to Samuel, he rebukes him, not for grieving, but for grieving too long. There's a difference, isn't there? It's appropriate to grieve. But God comes to him and says, how long will you mourn? You've grieved for long enough, Samuel. I, I want you to see something important here, that God is not wallowing in the past. God here is looking to the future. I think there's a sense in which God is always looking to the future in this way. The darkness, the bleakness, the sadness Oops. around Samuel it doesn't, it doesn't make God paralyzed or anxious. Do you know what, in, in verse 1, God says, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. And that last sentence there, God says, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. Literally, the end of verse one, God says, I've seen me a king. I love that. I've seen me a king. Sounds like a country and western song. So th this section starts with, Samuel, stop crying. I've seen me a king. I haven't dropped the ball. 
I haven't forgotten my people. I haven't let them go. This is not the end, Samuel. There's a sense in which the past has been bleak. But this is the beginning, mate. Stop crying. I've seen me a king. So God's choice here, firstly, wakes Samuel up and introduces a note of hope into the failure and despair that is evident in Israel at this point. Secondly, God's choice of David displays a wisdom that defies human logic. There's a lot of fear in these first few verses. In verse 2, Samuel is understandably afraid. When God says this to Samuel, Samuel says, How can I go if Saul finds out I'm going to have a massive big target on my back? I'm a dead man. This is treason. The king still reigns. I can't anoint another one if he finds out. Do you know, from where Samuel lived to where Jesse lived in Bethlehem, he had to go through the region where Saul lived. I mean, what does Saul say when one of his servants or men, hey, the prophet Samuel's on his way to Bethlehem, wonder what he's going there for. And so Samuel says to God, he's going to kill me if he finds out. And God says to him, take a cow, and go and sacrifice with Jesse in Bethlehem. And it's, it's not a lie. He, he t- God tells him to go to Bethlehem to worship. But the elders see Samuel coming down the road. And they know that Samuel and Saul have had a big falling out. And you, you know like when you're, I don't know, Maybe you're at work and you've got two bosses and they've fallen out and one of them comes to you and asks you to do something and you're like, "Uh, I I don't know whether to do what you say because if he finds out or she finds out, I'm going to... And you don't want to get caught in the crossfire. When Samuel shows up in Bethlehem, it says the elders trembled. They don't want to take sides. If Saul finds out that they've welcomed Samuel, he's not happy with them. And Samuel says, I've come to worship don't worry, it's okay. And then the parade of Jesse's sons begins. And the oldest one, Eliab, I mean, Jesse, it doesn't say whether Samuel tells Jesse specifically what he's doing, but I think he must have known because he brings his son one by one with the oldest first. So Eliab comes in. And Samuel immediately thinks, surely this guy's the one. He looks amazing. And God has to quietly rebuke him. Verse 7 is a very famous verse. It's kind of a turning point in the whole book. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think what's incredible here is that Samuel almost makes the same mistake twice. Saul was tall, tall Saul, we called him. Impressive, looked like a king, he had no equal. But he wasn't kingly in his character. 
And now Samuel sees the oldest boy, Eliab. He's impressive. He's tall. And Samuel thinks, man, this must be the guy that God's chosen. He's, re- he's almost ready to pop the cork off the anointing oil jar. He's, he's ready to tip it over his head and say, you're the man. I think um, this, um, this passage, in a way, reminds me of Sam Brown um, because he likes doing magic. I saw him doing some magic yesterday. And Sam will tell you afterwards, I read this in a book, I can't do magic. But when magicians do tricks, I was watching his tricks last night because I'd already prepared this. When magicians do tricks, they do them in such a way as to draw your eye to something they're doing that is inconsequential and unimportant while they're doing something else with one of their other octopus hands over here that is the trick really happening. That's how magic works, isn't it? Your eye is drawn to what's not important and you miss what's really important. Sam Brown did it. I was watching him last night and I still couldn't work it out. But it, that, that's how magic works. And that's what God says to Samuel in, here, in verse 7 here, be careful, Samuel, that someone doesn't pick your pocket again. Be careful. Don't fall for it. Stop looking at the wrong thing. Stop looking on the outside and start looking on the inside. And isn't this too incredibly relevant? Just a few quick things here. I think it's relevant to us because we spend so much money and time on our outsides trying to look good. Maybe a lot less time thinking about our inward character. But on the other hand, we're so easily taken in, aren't we, by appearances. It kind of immediately seduces us and and we don't look deeper than outward appearances on a serious note i want to say this 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 is why things like pornography are so powerful men who have struggled with pornography in a significant way it trains men's brains to value the women they know based on how they look rather than who they really are. We see on the surface, but we don't see the real substance. We see with our eyes instead of with our hearts. One commentator says that you could translate verse 7 that way. Not that the Lord sees the outside, but that people look with their eyes. God looks with his heart. He sees the substance, not the, the skin. And think about this. If, if our church was looking for a leader, we're, we're not looking for a, another leader at the moment, I don't think. Um, would we want someone who looks impressive and cool, an extrovert, a smooth talker, a mover and shaker? Or would we want someone who loves God and loves people Someone who prays, someone who's walking with God, someone who can cry, someone who is godly. 
God is teaching Samuel that appearance doesn't really matter one way or the other. It is the inside that counts. And I think sometimes, like here, God, in this situation, it's almost like God steps in and protects and saves Samuel and us sometimes from picking false saviors. God has to step in and stop Samuel making the same mistake twice. Don't pick a false savior. So seven sons come and they pass by and Samuel is confused. All seven sons come back and it's not any of them. God, God, he knows that God, is, God said to him, get your jaw, fill it with oil, go to one of Jesse's sons. I've seen me a king, one of Jesse's sons. And seven sons come by and not one of them. So Samuel turns to Jesse and he asks the obvious question, doesn't he? Is, are, are they, are they, have you got any more? <laughs> Do you have any more sons? And amazingly, Jesse says, oh yeah, there is another one. We didn't think it'd be him. He's, he's the youngest. He's, he's out looking after the sheep. We'll come back to that. They didn't even invite him to the party. And Samuel says, we're not eating. We're not going to do anything. I'll wait. I don't know. Was he sitting there tapping his fingers on the desk? He said, we're not doing anything until you've brought the youngest in. And they go and they run and fetch David. And David's brought in. And as soon as David comes in, God quietly prompts Samuel. He's the one. Rise and anoint him. God chooses the shepherd boy. At this point, David might be anywhere from 13 to, to kind of 16 years old. He's a teenager. Some of you are that age here today. And God prompts him and says, he is the king I've seen. David. The shepherd boy. Listen, all through the Bible, God is trying to teach us this lesson. God's choice constantly defies human logic. We would always choose the impressive looking, but God so often in the Bible, in the whole Bible unfolding story, God constantly chooses the youngest rather than the oldest. The weakest rather than the strongest. The one who stutters rather than the one who can talk. The barren rather than the fruitful. The outsider rather than the insider. And is it not true for us? In the New Testament, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Hey, thirdly, God's choice of David wakens hope, displays wisdom. It brings a love that satisfies human longing. I don't want us to miss what this must have felt like for David himself. His brothers had no idea. 
David, we were looking at Joseph in Genesis, weren't we? Last year, was it? David reminds me of Joseph. In the very next chapter, you get a sense of his brother's animosity towards him. We'll look at this next week. But um, look at the next chapter. David is set, his brothers have gone to war because they're older. And Jesse sends David with supplies for them. And here, chapter 17, verse 28. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the other man, he burned with anger at David and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You've only come down to watch the battle. That's his eldest brother talking to him. You get a sense of the family dynamic there, don't you? David, it isn't just working out in the field. It seems like his brothers despised him. In Psalm 69, we don't need to turn to it. David wrote these words. I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I'm a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my own mother's sons. Did you ever feel like that? But it wasn't just his brothers. His dad had no idea. Sometimes the youngest in the family is the darling. The baby in the family, everyone dotes on them. But not in this family. When the great prophet Samuel shows up, David isn't even invited to the party. It's almost as if Jesse's forgotten that he has another son. Apparently, in, in verse 11, um, Jesse talks about, um, he, Jesse says to Samuel, there is still the youngest. And that word that's translated youngest is a bit too polite for the original word. The original word is more demeaning and uh, pejorative. It, it, it means insignificant and weak, not really worthy of much notice. It's almost like Jesse, if we were translating that, Jesse may well have said, yeah, well, there's, there's the runt of the litter, but he won't amount to much. And Samuel himself had no idea even Samuel is looking for the strong, impressive one. And without God's intervention, he wouldn't have given David a second look. And maybe, you know, maybe David had no idea. I think at this point, God has already called him. I think David at this point is already trusting in the Lord. But never in his wildest dreams could he have imagined this that God could say to Samuel, I've seen me a king. Rise and anoint him, he's the one. I just want to pause for a moment and recognize what an amazing thing it is for God to set his affection on an individual person in this way. In David's case, it seems like no one even noticed him. The forgotten son, minding the sheep, totally unnoticed. And yet, here is a young boy who is utterly special to God. It didn't matter to God what his job was or what it wasn't. 
It didn't matter to God in heaven that he was forgotten and even unloved by his own family. God chose him and it transformed his whole life. I I, I think we long to be noticed, to be special, to be loved, to be significant. But if God chooses you, if God sets his affection on you, Surely it satisfies the deepest yearnings of our heart to be loved. Fourthly and lastly, um, God's choice of David releases a power that transforms human weakness. The final thing I want you to notice here is the very important verse at the end of this section. Verse 13 So Samuel did take the horn of oil and he anointed. The the anointing is like a special ceremony. It's a symbol of being set apart. He pours the oil on his head and anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And it says there, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In, In the original there, it says the spirit of God rushed upon him and the idea here is that God's choice of David is accompanied by his empowering of David God chooses him to be the king and also gives him the strength with which to to perform that role God chose him and equipped him And there's a couple of things I want us to see here before we wrap up some conclusions in a moment. Firstly, this spiritual empowerment tells us that David didn't do what he did in his own natural strength. He needed God's power. He couldn't be the king. He couldn't be the kingly king that Hannah had dreamt of in his own human strength and wisdom. And I think it follows logically that that means that David, God didn't choose David because he was naturally good. Actually, we read in the Bible that David was a man who was very conscious of his own weakness and confessed his own sins. So this power God gives him here is not a reward for his good behavior. This power that God gives is a gift of God's grace to him. God didn't choose him because he was a great king. He chose him in order to make him a great king. There's a difference, isn't there? There is a sense that God's choice is God's business. God doesn't have to explain all his reasons to us. We don't know the secret counsels of God, but what we do know this is important listen to this what we do know is when God chooses someone there will always be marks that are visible to everyone else that God is doing something we might not know why God chooses but we will see the evidence and the marks of that choosing the evidence of God's choice here in David's life will be seen in him having a new heart 
new values, a changed personality, a deepening faith and humility, a growing holiness and courage, increasing gratitude and contentment. But secondly, this spiritual empowerment was the beginning of great conflict in David's life. As soon as he's marked out as the man God has chosen, no sooner did the Spirit of God powerfully rush upon him, he found himself in trouble. And it's like this, throughout the Bible, I, I sometimes wish I could say it wasn't, but all the way through the Bible, whenever the Spirit of God comes, trouble follows. Persecution, opposition, conflict, imprisonment, difficulties. And it happened to Jesus the same way. The Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove at his baptism. And the next moment, he's in the desert being tempted by Satan himself for 40 days. From this point on, the conflict in David's life was not a mark of God's absence or a mark of David's sin, the conflict in his life actually was an evidence of him belonging to God. And God graciously gives spiritual power to David to energize him for the difficult spiritual battles that would come into his life. I think there's some encouragement and some challenge here, two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, David is a nobody. Even his family don't love him, it seems. And God sets his love and affection on him. There's an encouragement for us in that, isn't there? But the challenge is, the Bible always strikes this healthy balance between encouraging us to trust in and know the grace and love of God but at the same time to examine ourselves from time to time to make sure the marks of that grace are really evident in our lives. The gospel encourages us not to be presumptuous or arrogant or take things for granted or to be careless in our Christian lives, but it also encourages us not to be in despair or to doubt God's good intentions towards us. I think both those lessons are evident here in David's empowering how can we apply this then? I suggested to you in section one that the major theme here in 1 Samuel is the search for a proper kingly king. And Saul wasn't that king. And although David was a great king, he wasn't that king in an ultimate sense. I think there's possibly an ironic double meaning here in God's comment to Samuel at the beginning, I've seen me a king, God says, among the sons of Jesse. I think God's talking about David in part, but I think God's eyes are wider than that. And I think God's joy is bigger than that. And the hope that comes in despair at this moment is wider than this. God says, I've seen me a king among the sons of Jesse. When God says that, he's looking down the years of history and seeing another king, a son of Jesse, a son of David, 
And we could apply all of this to Jesus in an ultimate sense. God's choice of Jesus. God has chosen and set apart, anointed, if you like, his own son to be the king, the real ultimate kingly king that we all yearn for. He is the one who uses his power to serve others rather than exploit them. Jesus is the king who lays down his life to save his subjects. We, we might all have different opinions about Jesus. We talked about that at the beginning, but the key thing here is saying that he is God's ultimate choice. In this choice, God overcomes our despair, displays his wisdom, fulfills his love, and transforms the weak, all in and through the person of his son Jesus. Let me close very quickly with three applications for you to think about. Number one, don't be fooled. This passage is all about seeing. And God said to Samuel, stop crying, mate. I've seen me a king. So I, I want to say to all of you, whatever you do in your life, whatever your circumstances are at the moment, whatever you do, don't fail to see God's chosen king. If you are looking at something else and not him, you're having your pocket picked. The magician is conning you to look at what is inconsequential and miss what's really vital. So this afternoon, don't be fooled and miss God's chosen king. God's choice of Jesus defies human logic because like David, Jesus didn't look like a king. He didn't look like a somebody. God's ultimate king, though he is the eternal son of God, laid aside his glorious and beautiful appearance and came as a humble nobody. And in the end, he was murdered like a criminal. But don't be fooled by appearances because on the cross, he takes our place and the beautiful one becomes the ugly one the sinful one, the broken one, so that you and I can become beautiful and righteous in God's eyes. This afternoon, do you see what God sees? Do you see Jesus, the true King? Secondly, I want to say to you, to those of you who do see Jesus, the true King, and you embrace him, know your value and worth Whatever's going on in your life, if God loves you, if God has set his eternal affection upon you, you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. He's chosen you. He gives you a son to be all that you need. There are so many false saviors who will disappoint you and let you down, but God has given you the saviour in the Bible, this reality of God's choice is often intended to be an encouragement to those who are chosen. God said to his people in the Old Testament, 
The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. In other words, God is saying, I didn't choose you because you were something. I chose you simply because I loved you. God's choice doesn't start with something impressive or attractive about us. God's choice starts inside of his own heart and then comes out to seek us and bless us. It's the same in the New Testament. Peter wrote to Christian believers saying, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And lastly, be transformed. The truth is, that you and I will never truly be able to live a kingly life unless we see and know the ultimate king. To see Jesus as the great and loving king that he is will free you to live like him. And as you trust him, He'll give you his spirit to expand your heart and help you to fight what is a good fight. Like it was for David, it'll cost you, but it will be worth it.